Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. You say Nevada, I say Nevada. It's election shock therapy, Bethel <laughs> University. I'm Chris Moore. I'm Andy Bramson. I'm Matt Kukum. And I'm Sam Mulberry. You guys call the whole thing off. You know what? <laughs> I did hear that they've abandoned the uh, app that the Iowans were using, Shocking. so they Shocking. almost called the whole thing off. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're Iowa like, almost they're using the Google thing. Forms instead. Stay tuned. Now, <laughs> it's going to be great. I'm... Uh, I'm a happy endorser of, of Google yep. products and oh, Google yeah. Forms and I Google Docs. That just doesn't that just seem a little bit fraught? Yeah, I don't know. Are we okay with this? Do we feel good about using Google Forms to report election results? I don't feel results? great about it. I don't feel good about them saying they're going to do it. If they just did it and didn't tell us, it would be fine. Because I'm right. sure it'll be fine. But the fact that now we know, it's like, yeah. uh, like I could have come up with that solution. That's the problem. <laughs> and could, could there be other people who are filling out Google Forms for them who aren't actually part of the Nevada right. process? Like, right. Yeah. That's, I yeah, I mean, but I feel better about the software platform. You know, they're using, well, yeah. you know, iPads and they're using Google, right? So, you know, these are tried and true software yep. platforms by reputable companies, um, not these, um, <laughs> you know, companies literally called Shadow Incorporated. For crying out loud. <laughs> what could go wrong? Uh, the, the, the thing that... Chaos Inc. <laughs> Here's the thing oh, that, that, uh, that, that bugs me about knowing this is... Um, Back in the fall, we had a gen ed vote, and we we, we opted not to use Google Forms yep, or things. Yep, and like, and yep. this is this is just Bethel. Like, we were right. like, no, that doesn't seem secure enough for what we're doing. So the well, Bethel it was more like they agree. wanted to be anonymous. And I the, understand I think, that, but, so the, but it, the election it, people don't need to be. anonymous. You don't need to explain yeah. that. The fact right, that right. we had a way lower stakes yeah. thing going on, and we're yeah. like, I don't know, it's I don't true. feel great about Google Forms. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. It is true. It is true. Point. Well, let me let me before we get any further into this, give a little bit of a table of contents of where we're headed today. Right. Toc, toc, TikTok. It's a table of contents. No, I know, I got you. Okay, I, just, I didn't have anything funny to follow it up with. So uh, we're going to uh, talk very briefly about uh, what's coming up in the presidential election cycle, very briefly, and then in because we don't have a lot of new information to report, especially from a political science lens, uh, we're going to each talk about something that we're teaching right now. And how it connects to some current events in the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Sam, where are you guys at in CWC? Uh, we just started talking about the early church. So, actually, we mean, right. we're, we're getting into our next lecture will be involved uh, church and state because we'll talk about Emperor Constantine and um, mm, sort of the times. blending of church and state and, and those types of things. So, yeah. Nice. That's gonna, that, that just kind of writes itself for our current politics, right? It sure does. All right. Yep. Yep. Um, but we'll get to those things in a second, and then we're, we'll conclude with um, just uh, um, kind of what to pay attention to here. But first, yep. uh, Nevada is the next primary on the ballot. Actually, caucus or caucus, excuse yep. me. Yep. Um, and that, as we were as we were suggesting, <laughs> that makes this a little bit a little bit more complicated. Right. But hopefully, right. they've learned the lessons of Iowa, and this will. And is it correct that it's on Saturday? Yes. Um, no, it's Friday. Mm-hmm. I think isn't it the twenty first? 
South Carolina is Saturday. I think Nevada is No, Saturday. it's Saturday. It's oh, Saturday. It's Saturday. It's Saturday. It's Which makes okay. way more sense if you're going to mm-hmm. do this time-consuming thing to do yeah, it yeah, on a Saturday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. South Carolina is on a Saturday as well. So, so they're okay. So yeah. they're both yeah. – okay. We actually did yeah. just have a relatively decent, credible poll come out of Nevada. Uh, Bernie's got a big lead yep. in Nevada. Yeah. So there, there's, a, oh, um, there's a pretty good chance that – by the time we get to South Carolina, he'll have won yep. the first three states or yep. tied – won or yep. tied the first three states. We should say that Nevada has traditionally been hard to pull well. Um, it's it's just – Why is that? It, it, turnout is weird. Like it kind of estimating who actually turns out um, has been just tricky. I think a lot of it is there's a lot of people in the service industry – they're, um, you know, just with busy work schedules, you're just not sure who's actually going to come out, right? So okay. even if you hold on a Saturday, for example, right, um, a lot of them are working on Saturday, so it's actually hard to come out and caucus. So, um, I would, so I, trying I, to get a, a sample of people who are actually going to vote is has always been true. I don't mean to be trite, but we always talk about sort of blizzards in New Hampshire and Iowa, yeah, but yeah. that doesn't seem like it's an issue in Nevada, right? I mean, there's you're, you're, the yeah, weather's going to be pretty consistent. We're so. going to get to the edge of my geographic knowledge of Nevada very quickly, but I think that's right. Yes. But sometimes the slots are so loose that you yep. just can't walk away to go. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. like, I mean, I could go vote for Bernie or I could keep like I'm, I'm on a roll right now, right? Like, you just keep rolling. So, yeah. I, Sorry, Nevada. <laughs> That's know. the best we can do. I don't do. know why. That's what we this, think about. This morning, my son, like, uh, there's a there's a local TV station that runs reruns of the old school Inspector Gadget. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. At the same time that I'm getting like dressed in the morning. And my son likes to watch like an episode of Inspector Gadget yep. while I'm getting dressed. And the plot this morning was uh, uh, Dr. Claus, the bad guy, and he was trying to build a Santa? weather machine to hold the people of Las Vegas hostage so they'd have to pay a ransom to him. Otherwise, he was going to make it snow in Vegas. And I'm oh like, I word. don't think that's like a threat. That's like, that's like a welcome relief. That's like, right. Like yeah, they yeah. Would be Precipitation. They, they'd be up for that. Like, awesome. Probably use it. So. Yeah. All right. Anything we need to be paying attention to either in Nevada or South Carolina? Things that – sort of the wheat from the chaff kind of question. Are there certain things that people <laughs> should be paying attention to as these primaries or caucuses take place? Well, I mean, you will want to see if Bernie um, actually does um, pull away with the um, amount of votes that the poll seemed to indicate. So if he's going to yep. you know, over or underperform that. Um, hopefully he would overperform because that's a trajectory right now. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Biden and Warren because yep. they really desperately need to at least pull into third or second place. Oh, yeah. Um, if they don't, then the theory of the case for either one of them, especially Warren, I would say, um, continues to tank. And and Biden yep. really needs something to resuscitate him, even if he doesn't have an outright win, at least something that uh, will allow voters in South Carolina a week later to yeah. say, like, hey, he still has a shot. I'm going to go ahead and stick with him. Yeah. Right, right. Um, because it looks like his support, even amongst black voters in South Carolina, is starting to soften, um, soften mm-hmm. up, right? And, and they're mm-hmm. and they're heading to Bloomberg, is that right? right. Yeah, and yeah. and Bloomberg right now is rising in the national polls. Yeah. Obviously, he's not on the ballot um, right. or whatever they they have for a ballot in um, the, the Nevada caucuses. But yep. is he on the ballot in South Carolina? Nope. No. Okay. No. His Su- first Super ballot Tuesday. Is Super Tuesday. Um, he's on. I think all the ballots and all of the Super yep. Tuesday states. Yes. Yeah. I think so. so. But he is currently yeah. rising in the national polls. Um, he will be in the uh, the next Democratic uh, debate, which is uh, tomorrow. So that's going to be Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first time that he's going to be taking the stage. It'll be interesting right. to see um, what sort of attention he'll get because he's now rising in the national polls, um, second or third place in some of yeah. them. 
Um, he has, you know, um, you know, obviously loads of money um, that he's been using to basically buy up all of the, the airtime in mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. critical media markets. And um, he's starting to get more scrutiny. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if um, he gets, an, I think he would probably get attacked in the debate tomorrow night. And right. we'll see if this will have an effect, not so much for him, but perhaps on some of the other candidates uh, this right. uh, upcoming Nevada caucus on Saturday. Yeah, I think it's an interesting moment because, I mean, I don't think, you know, Michael Bloomberg has ever been accused of being particularly eloquent, right? And so, um, you know, I'm not sure how he's going to be on a stage um, with... Even one of his with, friends with, and supporters from New York described him yeah. as awkward. Yeah, he really is. And... Yeah, he's a kind of awkward, old, white guy, right? Um, and how is that going to contrast with Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, who are, you know, theoretically, insofar as we buy the lanes theory in his lane, right? Mm-hmm. Or Bernie Sanders, who's much more dynamic, even though even older, right? Um, or Elizabeth Warren, right? Who's just, who is, I mean, you know, one of my friends was recently describing her as very professorial in her style, but she is very articulate, right? And, mm-hmm. and I just don't know that you know, how well Bloomberg compares with them, right? And even Joe Biden's got a sort of folksy charm, right? Even though he hasn't been great in the debates. So I'm not sure, is this a good thing or bad thing for Michael Bloomberg? I mean, he has to participate now that he's in. It would be weird if he didn't, but does it help him? And I think that's an interesting thing Mm -hmm. to to kind of keep an eye on. Um, And then, you know, I mean, Sanders seems well positioned. Does he underperform or overperform? I think one of the things to watch with that is, you know, as I said, Nevada has been hard to pull. Um, Nevada is also a state where unions have usually played a big role. The unions did not endorse anyone or the ma- major union did not endorse anyone, but they did make negative comments about Sanders because of his health care plan. And they said, you know, mm. like, you know, it is kind of clear that he would probably, you know, his, his, his pr- proposal would be basically get rid of this health care plan that people like um, that they currently have. And that's a concern, right? And so that was not an endorsement of someone in particular, but it was a bit of a ding on his candidacy. Um, and so does that end up dragging him down a bit? And so then, because one of the narratives you could get out of Nevada if he, let's say, you know, he has this poll at 35%, let's say he wins with 22% or something like that, is yes, Bernie keeps winning, but he keeps winning by less than we think, right? And he looks like a really weak front runner. And that leaves him, I think, more vulnerable um, than going into Super Tuesday. On the other hand, I mean, You'd always rather win the first three states than not. Sure. So if he does that, three wins is three wins. Mm-hmm. I think the what well, well, interesting here is the ancillary effect. If Bernie yeah. Sanders wins three of the first four states, there's going to be some pressure on some of the down ticket uh, or down ballot uh, candidates yep. to get out. Yeah. So that the moderates can consolidate behind somebody. Right. Yep. There'd be more pressure from the party for Elizabeth Warren to get out. Yes. There might even be pressure for uh, for the party for Joe Biden to get out so they can cons- consolidate around Klobuchar or Buttigieg or maybe even Bloomberg. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a very strong chance. I mean, that Biden's going to start getting some pressure if he doesn't win South Carolina. I just. Right. I don't see, especially leading in the polls in South Carolina, as he still is, although we haven't had much good polling out of there. Um, how do you stay in if you don't win that? Yeah. Where are you going to win other than you know, your home The state? question is, you know, if he doesn't do very well in South Carolina, is he going to drop out yeah. the two days before Super Tuesday? Whether or not he makes that decision yeah. could have a really big yeah. impact. That's the yeah. thing. There's a lot of delegates that are uh, right. getting allotted on Super Tuesday. Right. And then after Super yep. Tuesday, well, there's obviously still lots of delegates left. Right. But, um, you know. The if you, thing, if yeah. you, the more you split up those delegates on Super Tuesday, the harder right. it is for anyone to get an outright majority. So, how many, how many, what percentage of the delegates are in Super Tuesday? If we're talking about this as a big chunk, Matt, do you have that number there? Um, it's thirty percent. Is it it's approaching a third? Yeah, it's it's like 25, 35 percent. Okay, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. And I mean, 
couple just a couple other things to note that are maybe important context points. One is um, if anyone drops out between now and Super Tuesday, right, they will still appear on the ballots, right? They're there. And in fact, voting is happening in some places for Super Tuesday right now, right? And so, you know, like let's say Joe Biden has a terrible performance in South Carolina and drops out. Um, there are people who've already voted for Joe Biden, and he will still be available on Super Tuesday, even if he's not. He said, I'm going to suspend my campaign, right? Mm-hmm. So that still matters. I mean, I think it still would be helpful to some of the other candidates if he drops. But for people who aren't, like, really tuned in to what's going on in the race, he'll still be there as an option. So if you were yep. thinking, I'm going to vote for Biden and you didn't pay attention to the news, right, you could still go in and vote for Biden. Um, so I think that's that's important. The other thing to note about the Democratic primaries in general and caucuses is that they allot their votes proportionally. And so that means, although Bernie, you know, winning is still better than not winning, right, Um the number of delegates you're getting is not actually all that different a lot of times for first and second right. um, if you're mm-hmm. if it's close, right? And so that Bernie and Buttigieg are pretty much tied, tied delegates, for delegates. Right, right now. Um, and so I think that also matters in terms of thinking about where like where does this go. On the one hand, I mean, like it's going to be hard to deny Bernie getting a lot of delegates because he's likely to continue to rack up over 15% of the vote in, in places. Um, but but it also means like it could easily we, – we could actually be heading – um, for a convention in which no one actually has an outright majority. Um, and the Democratic Party, the way they structure theirs is um, they're more prone to that than the Republicans. The Republicans do have some winner-take-all take all states where you you know, you know get 30% of the vote, but you're the winner, you get all the delegates. Right. Democrats have no states like that. Um, that only You only get all the delegates if no one else clears 15%. So that matters, and that means we could be in for a really long, drawn-out race. Yeah, probably I mean, are. And along those lines, I mean, the, the 538 model currently has – um, the percent yep. chance that Sanders wins more than half the pledge delegates out of two and five, yep. right? Um, and that no one wins over half as also two, two and five, five right? right. Um, so it's yep. just as likely, given where we're currently at, yep. this could change, that no one wins. Um, Meaning we have a contested convention of some kind. Yep. Yep. And that would get very interesting. <laughs> yes, it would. Oh. Um and we'll cross that bridge if we come to it. But if that happens, that's all the more energy for the Trump campaign. Oh, yeah. Um, is, uh, yeah. The more embroiled and uh, yep. intractable the Democratic process looks, the more that he, who will certainly easily win re- uh, real nomination for the Republican Party, right. um, can sort of take pot shots at the entire yep. process. Yep, absolutely. All right. Um, gentlemen, uh, I... Uh, would like to know what you're teaching in class right now. And I'd like to know how that connects to um, some issues hang- happening in the world. And if it's okay with you guys, I'd like uh, Dr. Kukum to go last because his is awesome. <laughs> so I, provocative. Can't, I can't wait to get into it. So, um, Andy, will you lead us off? Will you talk to us about what you're reading in class and how it connects? Yeah. So we're reading a book right now um, in my senior seminar class called Seeing Like a State, How Certain Schemes to Improve the Human Condition Have Failed. And it's by James Scott, who's a political scientist at Yale, who's taught at Yale um, for over 50 years now. And so Scott basically in this book is looking at kind of what do you get your own parking do? space at that point? What's that? Do you get your own parking space? I, I would imagine he gets his own parking space. He's very you – know, he's some distinguished professor. Yeah. Um, but Scott is looking at kind of what do states do? Um, and basically he's, he's arguing states – try to simplify things, right? They try to simplify the society to make it what he calls legible, right? In other words, so that they can they can basically treat people using the same terms, the same kind of basic policies and approaches, right? Um, and in so doing, they're losing a lot of kind of local practices that are really rich, that are really useful. Um, and 
um, that allow people to thrive more deeply. Um, and so you're losing that. And then he's particularly concerned about states that then take that knowledge, right, and then turn and use it to promote uh, or to enforce, really, what he calls an authoritarian high modern ideology. So basically you're, you're forcing a particular ideology on everyone. He makes it clear this could be from the right or from the left, right? Um, but, you know, he's got a number of different examples he's looking at. So it's, you know, how do you order cities? How do you mm -hmm. um, redistribute land, um, collectivize farms, and so forth? But his big interest is in, like, what happens when you try to force these solutions onto a whole society? Um, and, of course, that can have really de destructive consequences. And you can think about things like the Great Leap Forward in China or mm -hmm. villagization in Tanzania. Um, or even, you know, some of the, like, to a lesser extent, he doesn't really talk about these directly, but even some of the, you know, attempted reforms in the United States with the New Deal and so forth, right? I mean, what do these, mm. what do these end up resulting in? Um, the so, TBA, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so those are the kind of concerns that, um, that he's addressing, which I think is relevant. Um, and especially like one of, one of the things I was talking about today in class, um, is he uses this analogy of forestry. And so he actually, like, it's kind of fun. Like in chapter one, he spends like 10 pages talking about trees um, and forest practices. And his basic point is when you have, try to create like what he calls a monoculture, right? You have like plant a bunch of the same trees because they're optimal for, you know, producing a lot of lumber and you organize them in a really, you know, like rows and so forth, right? This is initially productive, but in the end um, is very vulnerable, right? Because mm -hmm. once you suck out all the kind of nutrients from the soil that are there from the old growth forest, um, these trees don't replenish the soil and they become vulnerable to disease and to disasters of all sorts. And he's making this analogy for our, our societies, right? That when states do this, right? When they don't um, allow this kind of flourishing of diverse practices, right? Um, the society itself does not get replenished. It becomes impoverished and it becomes vulnerable. Um, to to disasters of its own sort, right? And so I think um, it's a kind of a cautionary tale to us about like you know sort of trying to enforce what we view as the one right way for culture to function or for society to function, mm. um, as opposed to kind of letting uh, diversity um, of practices flourish. Um, so kind of a an interesting yeah interesting critique. Is he thinking mostly about economic planning, or is this also about um, political uh, sociology? What what it's is the both. what are the limits of these of this critique? It's both, and I I mean, and I think he also like when he has an interesting comment, like where he says in this book, I'm focusing on how states have done this, right? And so this is about how states have inflicted this harm. But he says I look forward to kind of where things are going. He said I'm actually almost concerned that this could start being the, the corporations that are doing this, the big kind of big economic. Hmm. Um, powerhouses, if you will, right? They're doing this in the States might end up being the defenders of this local practice, right? And he's writing this book in the late 90s. So it comes yep. out in 98, 99 um, in that range. But, you know, he says these these people have the same kind of incentive as states, which is to simplify things so that you can kind of create a, you know, a market that all is receptive to your product or what have you, right? Um, and the concern is, you know, again, that you just kind of destroy um, good local practices, right, um, that are responses to local needs, and instead you impose this kind of, you know, one-size-fits-all product um, when it doesn't really fit. Uh, so, classic question, which I'm going to ask and yep. of myself and, and, yeah. and Matt, too. Where do you see this connecting to current events? Well, I, you know, so one way I think about it is I, I look at our rising levels of political polarization and conflict, and I, mm. I see this connecting there. Um, one thing that strikes me when I look at our, our increasing inability to get along with people who differ. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of the partisan kind of divide. Um, 
one thing that strikes me is that when we do find ways to transcend that, it's increasingly the people who have a memory of the older times, right? And so it is, it is the people like you know, even even though they also have their divisive moments, the Mitch McConnells and the Nancy Pelosi's, right, and the the Joe Bidens, right, who remember what it was like to cooperate with people they differed from. Hmm. Um, and those people have a deeper sense of like kind of how the culture used to be, um, the kind of, you know, ethos of we were we are able to work together. Um, and increasingly, the younger group does not seem to have that. And I just, I wonder that, I mean, as a Christian, I kind of wonder too, if this is a, a result of the way we've turned in a different direction as a society, right? Where we once upon a time shared this kind of Judeo-Christian ethic. Not that everyone was Christian, not that they, you know, practiced the faith or anything like that. They didn't. This was never a, a Christian nation in that sense, right? But but that there was a kind of shared idea that the, these values ought to be how we order it, even if I don't actually necessarily live by them, right, in a given moment. Um, and increasingly, we've departed from that and sort of said, well, it's everyone, you know, kind of make your own truth, make your own moral framework, right? Um, and I think there's a we're living on that kind of old legitimacy, if you will, from that, that real shared conception to now we don't really share a common conception um, other than the sort of really thin concept of maybe consent or something like that. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I wonder, like, are we kind of like the, the trees in Scott's analogy? Are we sort of running on borrowed or old legitimacy that we're not replenishing? And what are the consequences? So it's a interesting work. The other work I'll be teaching later on that kind of thinks about this more explicitly is Patrick Deneen's Why Liberalism Failed. And he's basically, in some ways, even though I don't think he actually cites Scott, I think he should, but um, he he's thinking about, like, the problems we have right now and making an argument much like this, that we're kind of, you know, we're coming to the end of this because liberalism is a self-defeating project. And again, thinking of classical liberalism, not you know, democratic versus Republican liberalism. Cool. Um, I, I wish that my uh, idea was yeah. as highbrow as that. <laughs> it's not. Uh, well, you're so, not teaching senior sem this semester. So. I'm not um, looking forward to that ne- uh, um, next year. But I am teaching the politics of globalization, international mm-hmm. institutions. And we've been talking about basically the realist perspective, which is very skeptical of the importance of international institutions, versus the liberal institutionalist mm-hmm. perspective, which, of course, wholeheartedly embraces their importance. Right. And to try to wrap that into a worldview that also understands the changing structure of the world around it, mm-hmm. globalization. Right. Uh, I've been using the example of the of the implementation of a 5G telecommunications network. Mm. And mm. as luck would have it, just this past week was the uh, <laughs> Munich Security Conference. The, uh, I, I don't know what you cosplay as at the Munich Security Conference. If you can go as like like Frederick Wilhelm or something like that. I don't. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you dress up as for the Munich Security Con. Um, but. Uh, Lots of uh, security experts were there. Lots of uh, foreign officials were there from various countries around the world. Uh, the U.S. was the, represented by Pompeo there. Uh, this was a you know this is a big deal conference that happens uh, on an annual basis, and the United States' chief uh, occupation while we were there was to try to convince our allies to just say no to Huawei, and. <laughs> Basically, in the 5G world, Huawei is um, the Apple computers of, okay. of that world. It's, it's they're they're predominant purveyor of, of 5G networks, and 5G is going to require enormous investment on the part of countries for years to come to to, to move into a a fifth generation telecommunications network. It's probably going to be an outlay of somewhere between. 
private and public spending of somewhere in the range of a, of, of a couple of a tr- couple trillion dollars every year uh, across the world, just to kind of bring people up to the five G standards. And uh, Huawei occupies sixty percent of the global market in five G technology. So there's yeah. if you're not going to use Huawei. The next players are probably some of the Scandinavian companies, Nokia and Ericsson, and they're like a quarter size or less of the of the market as as, mm. as Huawei is. Um, the United States is concerned that Huawei has too close a relationship with the Chinese government. The Chinese government will be able to put uh, surveillance technology into Huawei mm-hmm. um, trunk infrastructure for the mm-hmm. 5G networks and basically turn it into a massive international surveillance system for the Chinese government. Or at the very least, exercise kind of social control over this. So sure. if people's... Uh, displease the Chinese government, they can obviously have their network shut down or right. an instance of cyber right. warfare that they would have sort of a locking, like, a, like a, um, a turnkey kind of system for, for turning off 5G networks. And so we've been pushing really hard to get people like Britain and France and Germany to, to turn down Huawei contracts. And so far, we've had very little traction in that. German, uh, the British passed a very milquetoast um Resolution saying that they would keep Huawei out of critical um, security infrastructure, yeah. but it's not clear what that even means, and that right. Huawei still gets right. to use their basically be the the purveyor of choice. So yeah. the United States is arguing is is, are, is has very little leverage here, but it's trying very hard to to keep Huawei out of the out of five G. So from what you know, I mean, are the I've not followed this super closely. closely yeah, no, I mean, but, I mean, is the U.S. concern legitimate? I mean, you know, it's fairly well known that China is is you know heavily involved in the number of you know, the Chinese government that is mm-hmm. uh, shady practices related to um, you know espionage of you know, and, um, you know stealing of technology, um, you know manipulating um, you know the social media within their own country, right? Um, just creating a mm-hmm. vast surveillance state within. Yep, within China, right? Mm-hmm. It's not um, incomprehensible that they would like to be able to expand mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. capabilities um, right. across the globe. So, what's what's your take as someone who follows this? I yeah, I think I think two things are simultaneously true. One, I think the United States does have legitimate concern here. Yep. I think that as in the past, the Chinese government has been successful at, at uh, um, leveraging Chinese companies to gather information domestically mm-hmm. for the Chinese government mm-hmm. and. It's no small step to, or it is. It's not that big of a step, I guess, to say that if Huawei um, has this large international reach, that the Chinese right. government could also use that as well. However, I don't think the United States has a lot of leverage to actually <laughs> no. get anybody yeah, to yeah. forego using Huawei. Um, right. It's. Uh, because their position is so dominant and because the United States can't present a reasonable American alternative, right. much less a global alternative to right. Huawei, I don't know where else you go with this. Yeah. Um, you're not going to get convinced countries to, to forego 5G. Right. So what do you do? There's just not another logical place to, to turn. It sounds like a little like trying to persuade students not to buy you know books on Amazon, right? I mean, like, exactly. Like yeah. it's, I mean, are there other alternatives? Yes, but they are all you know problematic in different ways. They're right? more expensive and right. slower, right. and yeah, yeah. And it's so, just a huge convenience. I guess the one, if I'm looking for a silver lining here, I mean, because I, I don't think this is America's Suez moment where we're trying to convince the world to do something and they just say no, and it's a sign of how weak America has become. I don't think it's that's the case. I think yeah. what, what's more likely to be the case is if Huawei does become this 
powerful in the global market, it does raise the stakes for them to be a fair player. And so it seems less likely that as they grow bigger and more powerful, that they'll have to be as responsive to the Chinese government moving forward. So mm. if you're looking for a way to interpret this positively, it could be simply that, that yeah. they might become too big to fail. And the the Chinese government can't simply just manipulate them for geo, geopolitical reasons. And they wouldn't be able to because of what reason precisely? Um, because... Uh, Huawei would more easily be able to say we need to be responsive to global business interests, not so much your own your internal desires for espionage and the global level uh, buzz off, basically. Um, but I don't know. Which is uh, yeah, I'm not the, sure. I'm even I'm not sure right. I'm convinced by that. Yeah, it assumes um, the leadership of Huawei is not itself sympathetic to the Chinese desires, right? If if they're just doing it for pragmatic reasons, then that maybe is true. Right. If they actually want to help China. Been, and we actually see not. even some of the ways that China is using this kind of social control right. with the coronavirus, yeah, yeah. where uh, not only is China using sort of high tech methods, right. uh, using telecommunications to try to surveil um, whether people are getting ill or not. Mm -hmm. It's also using some very low tech methods, too. And so yeah. China is using some of its telecommunication systems to keep an eye on the spread yeah. of the virus. And yeah. it's not democratic. It's not liberal. Um, but it might be an interest of public health. Yeah, right, right. So that's globalization. It's how much that's yeah. actually helping them right now, right. too. Right. So, right. And it's that, interesting. That remains to be seen. I think. It, it's been interesting because um, some of the features of their health sort of in the containment process of the, of the coronavirus, some of the local governments in China have basically said um, what the, the heavy-handed things you're mandating are not helping um, they're actually not helping us combat the disease. Please let us do sort of the old tried and true methods. Uh, and that's, right. um, and the Chinese gov central government has relented and basically is sort of devolving some of these choices back to local governments. Ooh, local practice. Right. And that's <laughs> in some ways heartening. Yeah. Yep. It is. Yeah. So. Well, right. I mean, the idea of, you know, containing whole cities, right. And quarantining off, you know, these cities of like yeah. 11 million people, right. Creates these perverse incentives, right. Yeah. So if you have to get, you know. If you want to get out of the city, you have an incentive to not go get tested, which, of course, you want people to go get tested right. so that you can right. make sure that they're right. treated and that they're isolated and such, right? So you can actually exacerbate the problem yep. In, yep. in sort of unexpected ways. Yep. So. All right. So one of the things that that the Chinese local governments are doing goes, dates back to sort of Maoist era policies where there are these public health group committees of mm. volunteers inside cities like Wuhan that are literally going door to door on a regular basis, doing well checks on people and taking their temperatures. Oh. Uh, and um, one of the things I caught, Matt, is that uh, if they're, if you're under the weather, if you think you might be sick with the coronavirus or just sick in general, they want you to stay home. Yeah. And they will go buy your groceries for you. Oh, nice. Um, so basically, uh, the, the the Chinese state is offering meal delivery services um, for uh, for yeah. ill um, um, for ill people in China, at least in in, in high infection rate areas. Wow. Is that something Sodexo should do for us? <laughs> they will not pay them yeah, any money <laughs> as long as they're providing just the raw ingredients and not the actual meals. There we go. Yeah, All right. So that I would I would maybe sign up. That was that, my weak so. attempt at transition. Yeah, so. I'm not so sure. What's public that. policy yeah. doing, and why does it have to do with Sodexo? Well, yeah. So um, only partially stole the thunder, but anyway. So in my uh, 
In my uh, public policy class, we're um, doing a number of things, but one of the things the students have to do is do, go through this reader that has various sort of, um, it covers various issues in public yep. policy. And one of the things that we discussed on Monday was um, for-profit prisons, um, okay. especially in, well, particularly in the United States. Um, of course, um, it's you know fairly well known that the United States incarcerates more a higher percentage of its population than pretty much any country in the world, certainly any developed country. Uh, mm-hmm. One out of roughly every 110 people in the United States is in prison, which is astonishing, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, as as you might expect, um, with the with the growth of of you know this incarcerated population, especially with the tough on crime policies that we got in the 70s and the 80s. Um, prisons, you know, suffer from severe overcrowding, and one of the solutions that state and federal governments have turned to um, are for-profit prisons, um, which can be constructed quickly, um, right. which are uh, somewhat cheaper, depending on how you figure it, um, and basically provide a way to get these prisons who are holding two or three times as many prisoners as they really were designed to sort of offload them into these for-profit prisons. And so currently in the United States, there's roughly eight or nine percent of the prison population is housed in uh, these for-profit prisons. And it was funny because I was reading through the, the the textbook or whatever. I'm not an expert in this, but I was reading through it, and uh, in this like little pro-con section for um, you know for and against for-profit prisons, um, the name Sodexo um, was in there. I'm like, what? So I got online and I looked it up. And Sodexo, for those of you who are not part of the Bethel community, um, provides um, the dining services here. And um, I'm like, is this the Sodexo? And also well, an incarceration services. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. apparently it's a, <laughs> uh, it's a multinational company. It's yeah. based out of France. Um, they have um, subsidiary companies um Doing all sorts of different things across dozens of countries around the world. I mean, they do food for food services, facility management, security, and apparently um, one of their subsidiaries um, operates for-profit prisons in the UK and Australia. Wow! What do you know? <laughs> and like, I wonder if this has sparked any protest. And it turns out it has. Currently, yep. um, as of basically the past week or two, there have been uh, student protests at Scripps University in California mm-hmm. um, uh, over this. They're trying to get um, their university to end their contract with Sodexo to provide them their dining services. Yep. The University of California system, I believe, is also considering moving away from using Sodexo. And I was uh, musing to myself, like, if Bethel ever wanted to get rid of Sodexo for other yeah. other reasons, a way to do this would be to foment student protests um, over having this, this multinational company provide food when they also um, run for-profit prisons, um, of which there's been some criticism and yep. how yep. how these uh, these inmates are treated and so on. Well, let me wow. let me just turn this That's back real quick, and then we'll get back to the Bethel angle here. Yeah. But um, the major controversy I'm aware of for why people are skeptical of for-profit prisons is because since the private company is itself profiting from incarceration, mm, right. Right. they often lead. Uh, they often are found to be lobbying states to produce harsher penalties, right. to produce more right. incarceration. Right. So they're literally trying to create business for themselves by yeah. by yeah. lobbying um, for criminal justice yeah. harshness. Um, are there other reasons why people are skeptical or critical of, of for-profit prisons? Yeah, I mean, there's the general concern that, I mean, even if you were able to take out the lobbying angle, still sort of there's a concern that you can't really run a, a humane prison profitably. Um, mm. And... 
you know, and even if again you took out the lobbying angle, these these large corporations, they you know they're they're publicly owned, right? Um, and so. Yeah. Really, you might think of corporations, their you know, first duty to some extent is to maximize value for shareholders, right? Um, and really to be able to simultaneously do that and run a humane you know, prison yeah. is, is maybe even impossible, right? Um, there's the profit motive. Um, some people have argued is just too strong, right? Yeah. There's too much of an incentive to cut corners on, you know, not only facilities, size, but also especially like on, on training and sort of compensation benefits for people who, you know, run these prisons, right? Because it's, it's, it's kind of a terrible job. Right. Um, and you need to compensate these people adequately. And they, it's right. highly specialized. and It's difficult. So they need training, right? Um, and they need, you know, incentive to stay in, right? And so, mm. so doing all that's very expensive, right? Yeah. And even if you can... Um, they can do it cheaper than a state or a federal government, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, privately you know, run companies are oftentimes more efficient than government yeah. bureaucracy. Cheaper labor. They're not paying government pensions. Yeah, government pensions is a huge part of that. Even if you count for the the savings there in order to create the proper sort of incentive structures and monitoring um, – mm-hmm. That itself is very costly, right? So right. states and the federal government, they have to have, you know, basically a bureaucracy that – would oversee these private prisons and monitoring costs, um, you know, mm. can be significant, right? And those yep. aren't often yep. factored into the savings that you might get from running these these for-profit prisons. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's complicated and it's messy. And you know, the people on the other side say, well, you need to relieve overcrowding um, yep. because overcrowding yep. in public prisons is what's currently contributing to these inhumane conditions. Right. Um, and so. Private prisons help us solve some of these problems and mm-hmm. allows us to do so in a relatively flexible way. And so long as you have proper, you know, structures, right. um, you structure the incentives and have sufficient monitoring. Um, really, they're not any worse than um, you know public prisons, which are yeah. currently pretty bad already. <laughs> so yeah, so that's kind of the the argument from the other side. Right. There's also just something like I find. I mean, it's all disturbing, as you point out. Like none of them are great, right? but but. There's something disturbing about like the idea of like people who are not part of the government who are private businesses effectively locking mm-hmm. people up, right? I mean, right. like, yeah. I mean, it's disturbing to think about people having to be locked up at all. But, but then just like there, there's something weird about that, like outsourcing that function, right? right. Mm-hmm. Of of yeah. government. I mean, it's just it's you know like I mean, is this maybe a bad analogy? But it's like if you know the Congress could hire you know Sodexo to make their laws for them, right? And you say, but they're not elected representatives of the people. That's not their job, right? And and we we accept the legitimacy mm-hmm. of the government being able to enforce the law and lock people up because that is sometimes necessary because of what they do. Not as much probably as what we do in the United States, to put it mildly. Like we're over incarcerated, but but. It, to then outsource that just seems like, yeah, theoretically, even if it ends up being functionally the same, it just seems theoretically kind of disturbing. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, maybe you could set up a way where you really did remove them from you, – you were able to wall off the legislative process so that yeah. they wouldn't be able yeah. to lobby for harsher laws yeah. and so that they yeah. would be properly you know, right, monitored. Right, right. But, but the ability to keep them out of that process, you know, as with anything and lobbying right. and the influence yep. of interest groups, which is so difficult, right, because yep. there's that profit motive. And really, yep. I mean, that's – you know, the, the argument that, um, you know, I guess you have to think of them as, you know, the, their clients are not these prisoners, right? These prisoners right. can't, no, you know, no. walk down the street like, <laughs> I don't like the services I'm yeah. getting at this prison. I'm going to go to a different <laughs> prison, right? Like, no, the, the clients, yeah. right, are these state governments, right? Absolutely. Right, sure. Um, and so, you know, how hard is it going to be as a state government yeah. to say, like, well, 
there is abuse and the situation is bad. And so we're going to, you know, prematurely try to end this contract um, and try to, you know, switch this prison over to completely different management. Right. I mean, doing that, even if you have flexible contracts, there's some real difficulties there. Mm -hmm. Um, I draw some analogies here. I think this is um, more objectionable to us for the reasons Andy says than something else, which Sodexo may have a hand in, but certainly other companies do, which is uh, privatization within the military. Yeah. It's something that I'm yeah. much more familiar with. But mm-hmm. a lot right. of the ancillary functions of our modern militaries are performed right. by private companies. Food right. service is one of them, which is yep. why I'm guessing Sodexo might be involved. Mm-hmm. But um, transportation, yep. surveillance, other kinds of uh, more routinized activities within the military right. are all performed by private companies now. Yep. And there's some skepticism about that, but it certainly is more cost efficient, but it, yep. it may be weakening our overall military posture. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that private prisons are maybe uh, doing an injustice yeah. to sort of state functions, yeah, I, you know, you mentioned if if you hired uh, a private company to do legislation, right. we do this through lobbying in some kinds oh, yeah. of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but imagine if we if we hired a private company to do the work of the State Department to perform diplomacy right. on behalf of the United States right. um, for some kind of a fee. Um, yeah, file that away, guys. I mean, that's our next business. Um, or alternatively, <laughs> if we do get rid of Sodexo, Matt, what if Political science department, along with everybody else in the university, just took a turn doing food service in the DC, right? Oh, yeah. Just get a couple um, crock pots, make some sloppy joes, some and sloppy dwayne. That's, right. that's yeah. lunch today. That's right. I was, I was hoping skeptical. for, I was hoping for taqueria Wednesday personally. I think oh, that's. Yeah. I don't know. Safe, I don't but... really trust all you Midwesterners to make food that I would really want to eat. Well, that's why. That's why we're giving you taqueria, man. You can, oh, okay. you can, you can, you can spice it up. I could maybe get on board with that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Um, so that's what we're uh, that's what we're reading in class. That's what we're talking about in class, and that's how it connects to some current Taqueria. events. Taqueria? No. Oh, all right. Um, but uh, we'll be back in your feed with a little bit more uh, about the elections once we have some results from Nevada. Once we have some results from South Carolina, and looking forward to Super Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, be thinking about um, kind of some of the things you're paying attention to, specifically in relation to. Um, how these candidates are sorting themselves and how mm-hmm. they're internally making some of their own decisions yep. uh, is something I really want to explore on, on a future podcast. Um, is there going to be a Super Tuesday party, Chris? There is going to be a Super Tuesday party. Uh, Sam, you want to talk about right. it? Uh, you should because you're more in charge of this than I am. <laughs> I, I'm not in charge of <laughs> You've it. You've just been deputized, my friend. Sam just did it on air. <laughs> I think uh, Sodexo is in charge of it. Uh, oh, we're no. going to be uh, <laughs> ga- <laughs> we're going to be gathering uh, in the poli size space. And uh, we'll be watching some of the early Super Tuesday returns. Yep. And, and non sodexo food. Um, sh- oh, sorry. Did I? If you bring uh, your non sodexo food, then you can eat it. It's, yeah, exactly. it's, it's BYOS. Bring your own snacks. Um, <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And um, we'll, be, uh, we'll be watching some of the returns. And uh, we might even be doing a little bit of recording. Is that right, Sam? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So stay tuned for that. You can also get a hold of us prior to Super Tuesday by emailing us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. We'd love to get your questions, and we'll address them on air, too. Um, As always, thanks for listening. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, go Royals. (laughs) 